Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Hi, I'm Greg Polson, and this is Cults. Today we'll begin our exploration of the most notorious American cult of all time, the People's Temple, controlled by the infamous Jim Jones. Like many new religious movements from the era, the temple had envisioned a racially integrated and just future. Instead, the cult's actions resulted in the largest mass suicide and cult murder in American history at the infamous site known simply as Jonestown. To determine exactly how this could have happened, I'm joined once again by my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. We'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of Cults on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. But for now, let's turn our attention to our first episode covering the People's Temple. In this installment, Jim Jones will be our primary focus. The People's Temple was very much a reflection of its leader, Jim Jones. Most of Jones's followers were poor, many were minorities, and all were idealists who found America's capitalistic system oppressive. At its most active in the early 1970s, the People's Temple had over 3,000 members, most of them residing in the San Francisco Bay Area and Los Angeles. The cult is known infamously for its deadly ending in rural Guyana, where over 900 people died by Jim Jones's orders. However, for most of their existence, they were just people, with an unshakable belief in communal living and pseudo-communist ideology. They wanted to combine the emerging civil rights of America with the shared responsibility for life they believed the USSR possessed. Americans were shocked at the mass death due to the trust and goodwill Jones had generated across the country. In the decades of the 60s and 70s, with tricksters and crooks springing up in religion and politics all over the country, Jim Jones always carried an air of respectability. This inherent conflict between the means and the end, or as Jones himself might say, the battle for the soul that rages within each of us, is the thematic heart of this cult's history. Jim Jones convinced himself it was all worth it, right up to the bloody end. Unfortunately, he was also able to convince his followers of the same. The end began in 1978 
on an airstrip in Port Kaituma, not far from the Guyanese capital of Georgetown. Four years before this bloody event in 1974, the nearby settlement of Jonestown was built by members of the People's Temple, funded by their own massive donations to Jim Jones's cult. Jonestown was supposed to be a utopia. That was Jones's pitch to his followers. The tragedy of Jim Jones and the People's Temple came about due to a lack of communal feeling and communal possibility in America. The cult drew people who just wanted to build a better world, one where we could all live together in harmony. In the beginning, long before the bloodshed, this simple dream could even be seen in Jim Jones himself. He desired a community, a family. So he started one. But Jones's need was born of a desire for power, not love. That inherent flaw remained a ticking time bomb throughout his life. We need to see when the clock was set. Back in May of 1931, not long after the Great Depression had fallen upon the world. On May 13, 1931, James Jimmy Jones was born to Lynetta and James T. Jones in rural Crete, Indiana. Yet from the start, there was no stability or comfort in the child's life. Like many at the time, James was driven away from farm work as the Depression took its toll on the country. Country families were forced to move closer into urban centers in the Midwest. Lynetta and James moved with their three-year-old son to the growing town of Lynn, Indiana. They lived in a small house surrounded by a dusty, barren yard. By night, the trains rolled by, carrying prosperity elsewhere. Such conditions only enhanced the restlessness in the heart of Lynetta Jones. In her opinion, she had never been meant for small-town life. She was a dreamer and achiever since childhood and never let her gender define her goals. Lynetta attended agricultural and business colleges, hoping to start a business of her own. But when her mother died in 1925, the shock drove Lynetta to seek comfort in a more typical life. She would settle down and start a family. She married James Thurman Jones a few years later. He was 16 years her senior, but he seemed to have a solid career ahead of him. But the gas attacks of World War I had taken their toll on James's lungs. No longer able to sustain himself in field work, he took on menial labor jobs. Once the family moved to Lynn around 1935, Lynetta did most of the supporting, working long hours at a factory near town. James, on the other hand, collected government disability checks and developed a gambling addiction at the card tables in town. Little Jimmy's earliest memories of his parents was one of despair, with James collapsed on the floor weeping at his misfortune while Lynetta berated his laziness and addiction. Needless to say, a desire to succeed, to escape, was planted inside Jim Jones at an early age. As Lynetta spent most days at the factory, a cigarette-smoking, politics-talking outsider amongst the other women, and James T. Jones lugged his weak body between custodial work and the card tables downtown, Jimmy spent his childhood alone. A perfect image to characterize this lonely childhood is that Jones learned to walk by leaning against his red toy wagon out in the yard, unseen and unaided by his parents. This formed Jones's self-identity, he was on his own and would need to make his own way in the world. This would lead to an obsession with control. If Jones had control, his lonely circumstances would be changed. Jones was seen as the dirty, wild neighborhood kid. Often naked and covered in dust, the four-year-old ran around the area, finding animals to capture and take back to his yard. Lynetta loved animals herself, so she allowed Jones to build quite a menagerie behind their house. 
chickens, goats, cats, even snakes. By the time Jones was five, a gang of wild dogs had so taken to him that they followed him around the streets. Lynetta and James were sometimes unable to discipline Jones when he had his gang of dogs by his side. An early, if comic, taste of power for the young boy. Still, as young Jones aged, he became more aware of the lack of love in his life. It was clear to him that his parents didn't love one another, and that they weren't like the other parents in town. A direct quote from him offers up this insight in fuller detail. Quote, I was ready to kill by the end of the third grade. I mean, I was so aggressive and hostile. Nobody gave me any love, any understanding. In those days, a parent was supposed to go with a child to school functions. There was some kind of performance, and everybody's parent was there but mine. I'm standing there alone, always alone, end quote. Jones found few allies at school. He was an attractive child, but he didn't look like everyone else. He had dark hair, dark eyes, and distinctive facial features that set him apart. Amongst the blonde, blue-eyed Midwesterners, he stuck out like a sore thumb. But after school let out, things changed. On the streets of his neighborhood, kids were forced into close proximity with Jones, and a latent skill at social manipulation reared its head. Surrounded by a bunch of boys struggling through puberty, Jones realized that power structures were in flux, and his clever nature would finally come in handy. He knew when to be beta, and he knew when to be alpha. He rode the waves of the group's turbulent emotions and emerged on top, the director, the one with the most conviction. Jones began to value manipulation over sincerity. When he shifted his personality to suit another's, he was rewarded. In the early years, his manipulation and chameleon-esque nature was driven by a sad ambition to be accepted. This is a lesson many of us learn as children. If we act differently around different types of people, different results will emerge. The most intelligent children can often manipulate people this way, before their moral judgment evolves and solidifies. In fact, it's the driving characteristic of the classic childhood tale, Tom Sawyer. Unfortunately, in Jones's case, his desperation and need were so great that when he felt the rewards of his manipulative behavior firsthand, he doubled down. He saw manipulating others as his true power. With the group under his sway, Jones led them to his backyard and into the barn where he kept his stock of animals. One fateful afternoon in the early 1940s, when Jones ascended above his fellow boys to a raised platform at the far end of the barn, he discovered that he had a true command of the English language. When he stepped onto that platform, Jim Jones became a preacher for the first time in his life. An astute pre-teenager, he lectured the boys on morality, on religion, on science. He tested their minds and read them stories from the Bible, adding his own moralizing tangents. The more flamboyant and boisterous Jones was, the more his friends paid attention to him. They were hypnotized by his bravery and assertive speaking. When this newly extroverted personality earned him more attention from his mother, Lynetta, too, Jones knew there was no turning back. He had found his calling. Jones began regularly dressing in a long robe, his version of a priest's smock. He decorated the barn with candles and stacks of books. In the hot summer months, he made lemonade to lure the boys into his temple. And in the cool autumn months, his lectures and lessons could span six hours a day. Jones raised carrier pigeons. 
In front of his peers, he sent these birds out of the barn with mysterious messages tied to their legs. He never told the boys what the messages were, and he saw that their interest and investment only grew. Charisma, intelligence, command, and mystery. Jim Jones was a natural. But early power also awakened a malicious side of Jones. He sometimes locked the boys, like his best friend Don Foreman, in the attic of the barn for no reason at all, calling it a test of will. He also tortured his animals, bleeding them in so-called scientific experiments, or cutting off limbs of ducks and tying them to chickens as an example of his surgical prowess. When Don asked Jim why he had so many animals if he didn't even like them very much, Jim replied, I just want them. Animals were means to an end, in other words. Even if he hurt the creatures, it was worth it to be surrounded by attention and interest. The end, as always, being community and acceptance. Jones's neighbor, Myrtle Kennedy, an older, pious woman, noticed the boy and his strange robes. Since Lynetta never took Jones to church, Kennedy did it herself. So began Jones's religious journey through Lynn, Indiana. Kennedy's Nazarene Church was Jones's first introduction to organized religion. He then went off on his own personal tasting tour of everything Lynn had to offer. The straightforward Methodist Church, the popular Disciples of Christ Church, the anti-war Peacenik Quakers. But the church that truly blew Jim Jones's mind was outside of Lynn, along the dusty highway toward the countryside. It was a small Pentecostal congregation, newly inspired by the evangelical movement. Derogatorily called holy rollers by the mainstream Christians in town, they were animated in their worship, crying, singing, dancing, speaking in tongues. But to Jones, the rollers were inspired. They were connected to something higher than themselves, and they welcomed anyone into their ranks. Their practice inspired the young barnyard preacher. As Jim Jones entered high school, his moral ideas took on real weight. After years of listening to his mother spout unpopular opinions about the state of labor and race relations in America, Jones himself took on the mantle of social activist. The war between socialism and capitalism spoke to Jones, and he became fixated on communist ideas. He thought Marx's living was the only true path to true civil rights in America. Until then, the capitalist market would exploit the poor and the minorities like it always had. This child, born of the Depression, became a socialist convert. It was a strange brew, the wild evangelical streak from the Holy Rollers and the grounded atheistic perspective of Lynetta Jones. But social justice was the link, and socialism was the marketing strategy. It became the guiding directive of Jim Jones's proselytizing for the rest of his life. He spent his days at the high school library, obsessed with the famous and infamous leaders of history, from Marx to Lenin to Gandhi. Secretly, he even harbored a disturbing admiration for Hitler's oratory influence. But these studies weren't bringing Jones enlightenment. Even as he spent his weekends journeying into the more urban city of Richmond, preaching to minorities on the street about the pursuit of civil rights, he remained desperate and lonely. Lynetta finally divorced her shiftless husband in 1946. She told 15-year-old Jones they were moving to Richmond permanently. Jones found it hard to leave behind his first congregation of local kids, especially Don Foreman. But Jones had no idea how to communicate this fear and sadness in a sincere manner. Instead, he called Don over to his house for dinner. When the night came to a close and Don tried to say goodbye, Jones pulled a gun on him 
and even fired a shot as Don ran away. Don remained committed to this friendship, either out of fear or misguided loyalty. He often drove to Richmond and volunteered with Jones at a nursing home and hospital. Yet at the hospital, Jones was his boss and often gave Don humiliating and pointless tasks as torture. He once forced Don to carry a bag full of gangrenous limbs into the cremation chamber and remain in the claustrophobic, noxious space until the rotten body parts fully burned away. Don abandoned the hospital and the friendship, and Jones was left alone yet again. But not for long. To the rest of the hospital staff, Jones was seen as a saint. He stayed up late at night with older residents, reading to them and pulling long hours doing dirty work, even as he continued his high school studies. This attracted the attention of a kind-hearted young nurse, five years his senior. Her name was Marceline Baldwin. She was a new companion and a new mark for Jones's particular brand of manipulation. By 1949, they were married. Jim Jones was 18. Marceline was 23. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. And now, back to the story. Unlike the urban districts of Richmond, where Jim Jones often preached on the streets, the upper-middle-class neighborhood of Marceline Baldwin's family was safe, secure, and full of community. Needless to say, Jim Jones didn't quite fit in with the Baldwin clan. By 1950, Jim Jones had abandoned the idea of going to college and spent most of his time lording his increasingly radical political beliefs over Marceline. Raised in a strict Christian tradition, Marceline was shocked to see Jones move away from religion. Disillusioned with his lack of progress through life, as he still made most of his meager living at the nursing hospital, Jones quickly revealed a new side of himself to Marceline during their marriage. He was domineering in every sense of the word. He believed Marceline's ideas about the world to be naive. He lorded the wealth of her family over her head and made sure she knew just how unfair the world truly was. He was often verbally abusive and condescending. In the Joneses' house, Jim Jones knew everything. As Jones dove deeper into works by Marx and other communist theorists, Marceline worried that he had lost his connection to God for good. This wasn't the type of man with whom she had wanted to raise a family. Then, in 1952, like a hand of fate reaching down from heaven, Marceline discovered a new creed written by the Methodist Church. Its focus was social and local. To quote directly, the manifesto focused on, quote, the abatement of poverty, security for the aged, collective bargaining, free speech, prison reform, and the rights of racial groups, 
end quote. In short, it was everything in which Jim Jones claimed to believe. Within a few short months, he had registered with the Methodist ministry. In 1953, Jim and Marceline moved to Indianapolis. Jones taught at Somerset Methodist Church in a poor neighborhood, but spent the rest of his hours laying the groundwork for his own congregation. Jim's vision was simple. He would lead the first fully integrated Methodist congregation in the city. In doing so, he'd lead the way forward for the entire Methodist Church in America. But Jones never really returned to mainstream Christianity. The religion became something of a Trojan horse for the preacher. Through the setting of a religious gathering, Jones could pass on his radical socio-political ideas. Clearly, though, this agenda needed to remain in the shadows. It was difficult enough for a mainstream Methodist preacher to raise the funds to buy a venue. On his off days, Jones peddled around Indianapolis, selling monkeys he imported from overseas. Jones even had a personal monkey for himself one that he trained to attack anyone who rubbed in the wrong way or made a comment he didn't appreciate. These eccentricities didn't lend to the Methodist image, but when Jones convinced Marceline to join him at a local Pentecostal convention, the true scope of his charisma came into focus for the first time. Called up on stage and proclaimed as a rising prophet by a Pentecostal leader, Jones overcame initial anxiety and entered what can only be described as a trance state, Speaking full speed and nonstop for almost an hour, Jones held the entire convention in the palm of his hand. He quoted biblical passages seemingly at random, tying them into modern-day issues and moralizing. He even ended the performance by calling up members of the audience. People fell to the ground under his touch. Even Marceline couldn't believe the influence he managed to command with only one afternoon. Attendance at this convention marked a turning point in the development of Jones's congregation. It made Jones recall the power and energy of those early Holy Roller sermons. From this point forward, Jim Jones decided he wouldn't just be a preacher, but a faith healer as well. After witnessing his performance at the Pentecostal convention, local Reverend Russell Winberg gave Jones time on the pulpit at the nearby Laurel Street Tabernacle. Here, Jones began to perform faith healings on a regular basis. He would call a volunteer, stricken with some disease or illness, and cure them on stage in front of everyone. Now, cure isn't the most accurate way to put it. What Jones did was put on a magic show of sorts. For example, if a congregant was suffering from cancer, Jones would stand close to them and, utilizing sleight of hand, would pull out a fleshy, bloody mass, telling everyone that it was the malignant tumor itself. The chosen congregant believed in this event, even if their sickness never went away. They just wanted to believe, and Jones knew that. Really, this was just more barnyard preaching. The malignant tumors were animal organs kept in jars backstage. These cancer extractions brought Jones immense popularity at the tabernacle. Jones didn't particularly want to continue this practice for long in the early years, but the results were undeniable. Impoverished congregants, in particular, were drawn to faith healing events. It appealed to their sense of a righteous God, one who did not charge hospital prices for miracle cures, one who made sure true believers were safe. As for Jones, it brought him a lot of delicious attention, adoration, and donations. After organizing his own massive convention, headlined by nationally famous preacher William Branham, Jim Jones finally had enough money to buy his own church in Indianapolis. He also amassed some loyal followers. 
alongside fellow preacher Russell Winberg, there was the intensely loyal construction worker Jack Beam, the gossipy and boisterous Patty Cartmel, and the young Jim Cobb, an African-American youth seemingly healed under the Reverend Jones's touch. Jones prophesied Cobb would be a great leader within the church one day, sealing the boy's fate with a few encouraging words. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, there was Archie Iyamis. Iyamis was a black man who attended the joint Jones-Branham conference to see the legendary Branham. Instead, he came away converted by Jones's dedication to social justice. Iyamis himself didn't claim to be religious. In his own words, he was a universalist, an ideology devoted to establishing equality amongst all people. In Jones, Iyamis saw a kindred spirit. In turn, Jones told Iyamis that he was destined to be a preacher. Jones really just wanted a black leader in his ranks to prove that Jones put his hiring practice where his mouth was. The small group of key members made up the leadership tier of Jim Jones's first congregation. And in 1957, the first People's Temple of Indianapolis was born. Having a space changed everything. Instead of losing donations to the controllers of venues like the Laurel Street Tabernacle, Jones was able to directly accept every penny given by his followers. While the congregation only numbered about 100 by 1958, Jones had also gained enough traction to be recognized by the city as a social justice leader. Jones opened a soup kitchen as well as two nursing homes. These functioned in two ways. One, it helped solidify the mission of the temple in the people's eyes. Two, it gave Jones prime recruiting grounds for desperate and lonely souls. Jones designed every aspect of his life to reflect this social mission. Marceline desperately wanted a family of her own. So first, Jones adopted a 10-year-old girl named Agnes, abandoned at the temple by her own mother. Soon afterward, Marceline and Jim adopted two Korean children, naming them Stephanie and Lou. Within two years, though, Stephanie died in a tragic car accident. Jones and Marceline flew over her friend from the orphanage in Korea, bringing Suzanne into their lives. Marceline gave birth to her one and only natural-born child, Stefan Gandhi Jones, in 1959. Jones took this birth as yet another marketing opportunity. They simultaneously adopted an orphaned black child and named him Jim Jones Jr. Stefan and Jim were to be raised like twin brothers, to the Congregation of the People's Temple, a beautiful metaphor for their greater mission. Jones called this collection his Rainbow Family, but they were more a banner image for the People's Temple than a close-knit group. As the temple grew, Jones spent less time engaged with his actual family and more time cultivating his larger, symbolic one. Jones's manipulative tactics grew even more extreme. If someone like Marceline or one of his associate preachers disobeyed his will, Jones collapsed to the ground, gripping his chest. Jones claimed that he had established a more direct link to God. He was inspired by the Philadelphia preacher Father Divine, who claimed to be a prophet in the old school sense of the word, a visionary who was nearly one with the Lord above. This slots perfectly into the psychiatrist Robert J. Lifton's ideas about the manipulation tactics he calls thought reform. One important aspect of thought reform is milieu control. Jones always knew this was valuable. It's why he trapped friends in his childhood barn, and it's why he later isolated his cult in Jonestown. Another piece of thought reform is called sacred science. This means that a cult's doctrine rises above individual thought and belief. Anytime someone went against Jones, they went against the entire mission of the temple. 
Jones claimed that this negativity directly affected his health. If someone spoke up against him too much, Jones would grip his chest and fall to the ground. He writhed in pain until his chosen target submitted once again to his will. These dramatics manipulated the emotions of the target. Marceline was especially affected. She stayed in this flagging relationship until the bitter end because she wanted to make sure Jones didn't kill himself through sheer exertion. Jones also grew addicted to what he claimed were vitamin injections, but in reality, they were amphetamines and painkillers. As the 60s dawned over the People's Temple, followers were having a harder time finding the Bible in Jones's sermons. Much like Father Divine, Jones' focus was anti-materialism. He wanted his followers to give up all of their earthly attachments and dedicate themselves fully to serving in the temple's various social wings. Also like Divine, Jones moved focus away from worshiping God. Instead, he told his congregation that God was the good that existed inside all of them, and that Jones himself was the paragon of this goodness. This was the final evolutionary step in Jones's command of thought reform. Lifton names the term mystical manipulation. Jones began practicing this tactic with his faith healings. He orchestrated events that led people to assume he had mystical abilities. The end goal was to craft the identity of an earthbound God. Over the coming years, Jones would double down over and over again on mystical manipulation. This alienated many, but Jones didn't care. He wanted only the followers who would buy into his cult of personality. He wanted people willing to believe he was God. With the help of Patty Cartmel, who acted as a spy on his part within the congregation, Jones began reading minds and predicting futures in his high-energy sermons. This proves that, by this point, Jones knew all of his power arose from the minds of his followers. He needed to know everything about them so that he could play on their fears, individually and collectively. He would craft personal prophecies of doom for those whose beliefs seemed to be wavering, and reward visions of success to those firmly in his ranks. For those already ready to believe, this was even more proof. Jim Jones was truly a prophet. For those who were suspicious, though, the People's Temple increasingly seemed like a communist experiment. Sure, Jones never used the word, instead returning again and again to the term communalism, but the implications of his anti-capitalist, anti-materialist creeds were becoming ever more clear. A voracious reader of the news and a keen historical mind, Jones was able to recontextualize modern events in an epic and religious light. Jones was especially obsessed with the nuclear bomb. As the war in Vietnam heated up and the Cuban Missile Crisis brought the reality of the Cold War into sharp relief, sermons at the People's Temple took on an apocalyptic aspect. Hopped up on drugs and egomania, Jim Jones became massively paranoid of the end times. While it's doubtful he believed that God was truly about to punish America, he probably believed that a fully human-created nuclear war was imminent. He dove deeply into research. Jones read that South America was likely to be the safest continent if such a nuclear conflict broke out, mostly due to the high mountain ranges to guard against radiation and distance from nuclear crossfire between the U.S. and USSR. So began the first plans to migrate the People's Temple out of America. In 1962, Jones left Winburg in charge of the temple and took his Rainbow family on an exploratory trip. First, they passed through Georgetown in what at the time was British Guyana. Jones's paranoia wasn't sated, though, until they reached Brazil. 
Jones spent two years pulling his usual faith healing tricks in the town of Belo Horizonte and the city of Rio de Janeiro. However, Jones soon heard from Archie Iames, Russell Winberg was turning members of the temple congregation against Jones. In 1964, when Jones announced his return to Indianapolis, Winberg walked out of the temple and took nearly 100 communist-fearing followers with him. Jones's congregation was at its smallest size since its inception, and his paranoid and failed journey into South America did not raise any confidence. A drastic change was needed. And like many cult leaders of the time period, Jim Jones looked west to California. Jones sent his top lieutenant, Jack Beam, on a scouting mission. Although South America had fallen through for now, Jones had determined that Eureka, California would be the safest location in the continental United States in the event of a nuclear strike. Beam did him one better by finding a small valley town known as Ukiah. Jones wasted no time. By the end of 1964, he told his Indianapolis congregants that he had experienced a new prophecy of the future. 1967 would bring an atomic explosion to Indianapolis. They had to get out of there before that happened. And Jones had the answer. The People's Temple would officially move to Ukiah, California. This, of course, was a big ask. A good number of congregants didn't buy into the apocalyptic prophecy, and they were lucky to get out now, sparing themselves from the small-scale apocalypse Jones would one day enact in Jonestown. But many families were closely linked to the temple at this point. Their lives revolved around it. And even if they themselves didn't believe, they had loved ones who did. They wouldn't abandon them in this time of fear. In the end, 140 people packed up their Midwest lives and followed Jim Jones to California. Jones's entire Rainbow family went along for the ride, along with his mother Lynetta. It's unclear how Jones's mother felt about the People's Temple, but she must have appreciated how deeply Jones took her beliefs about inequality to heart. He may have become a preacher man, but the social ideas that Lynetta instilled in him as a child were still his motivating force. The move to Ukiah also signaled a huge shift in living for members of the People's Temple. Families lived in large groups in rugged commune housing. Much like Jones's childhood, these communal houses around the new location of the temple were old-fashioned. Material amenities were completely forbidden. Animals and children roamed free together in the yard. With Marceline's much-needed help, Jones was able to put many of the congregants to work at the nearby Mendocino State Hospital. Jones, more than ever, needed to promote an image of himself as a provider. He had dragged them out here. Now he really needed to prove his power and influence. He immediately set to work, opening two nursing facilities and eventually a soup kitchen. He wanted to replicate and expand the model he had already perfected in Indianapolis. He also appealed for legitimacy in a more direct way. The temple applied and was accepted as a church within the national framework of the Disciples of Christ, the mainstream reformed Protestant denomination now known as the Christian Church. Unlike many fresh religious movements in California, the People's Temple seemed to officially be a Christian church. While they had to pay dues to the Disciples of Christ's leadership, the prestige lent Jones a greater ability to recruit and grow his personal following. And the Disciples of Christ surely weren't complaining. 
Donations from the People's Temple steadily grew over the next decade. While in 1966, temple membership numbered just over 100, they had grown to 300 by 1969 and 3,000 by 1973. And at that point, they were sending upwards of $15,000 a year to the Greater Disciples Network and pocketing much more just for Jones's and the leadership's use. While his congregation settled and integrated into the local environment during the tail end of the 60s, Jones set off with the goal of winding his tentacles into both San Francisco and Los Angeles. These urban centers were always Jones's focus due to the high level of poverty and social injustice in cities. It was cynical and calculated, but true. Jones knew that the minority audiences in these places would be susceptible to his message. Indeed, by their peak membership in the 70s, the temple membership was 70 to 80 percent black, even though the only black person with any power in the leadership ranks remained Archie Iamis, and to a lesser extent within the youth groups, the teenaged Jim Cobb. A key recruit in this regard was Timothy Stone. A former conservative law student, Stone entered the workforce and slowly liberalized. A white man like Jones, Stone both felt guilty for his privilege and powerful enough to make a change and a name for himself in the process. The People's Temple was catnip for Stone. He became Jones's agent in the politics of California, working his way up into the local district attorney's office. Stone brought his young wife, Grace, along for the ride. She was less convinced of the temple's mission. However, Jones allowed Stone and Grace to live a life with more luxury than other congregants. They lived farther from the temple itself in a private apartment and were allowed to keep luxuries like record players, dishwashers, and the like. Yet another example of Jones's skill at social manipulation. He won Stone's and Grace's favor by allowing them to bend his rules and simultaneously made them outcasts in the eyes of many in the cult. For both of those reasons, they could only turn to Jones in times of need, their benevolent overseer. The Disciples of Christ either didn't realize or chose to ignore the liberties Jones was taking in his supposedly Christian mission. Traditional religious beliefs were quickly being drained from his sermons. During an infamous sermon in 1971, Jones declared himself the God Socialist, making both his personal grandiosity and political convictions clear to all who were willing to listen. His absurd faith healings also reached an all-time high, especially when Jones took a contingent on the road to Los Angeles or San Francisco venues. When they were away from home, loyal members of the temple, such as Patty Cartmel, could blend into these audiences, plants for Jones to call upon in the moment. There are reports that Jones' plants would sometimes wear old-age makeup or even blackface. Jones wanted to trick the vulnerable populations in his audience by healing those who looked like them, by solving the problems of their community. Temple members who disguised themselves and lied for Jones felt uncomfortable. Of course they did. But they continued all the same. Jones had trapped them in his own twisted logic. The ends justified the means. Even if they had to lie to get people into the temple, they were saving lives. They were bringing light to the shadowed places of society. Soon enough, they had big enough followings in both cities to open two new temples. These facilities were much larger than the church in Ukiah, and although Jones wasn't always there, his presence inevitably drew huge crowds. And as he worked his way into the hearts of believers in San Francisco and Los Angeles, Jones and Stone angled their way into the political minds of local leaders. 
Within the temple community at Ukiah, Jones established a so-called planning commission. This name was taken from Soviet government structures, further proving how brazen Jones had become in regards to his communist ambitions. The Planning Commission, or PC, was ostensibly a leadership council, but the initial group quickly ballooned in size, encompassing over half of the temple's membership. So Jones kept dividing and breaking down the Greater Planning Commission into smaller and more elite agencies. He was creating a tiered reward system and turning members of the temple against one another as they all competed to impress Jones and win a place closer to his side. And as this intra-temple competition became more rapid, the true darkness hiding within Jones and his ideology finally revealed itself. We'll return to our story in just a moment. Now, our story continues. In the most literal sense, the 1970s became the decade of an important question for followers of Jim Jones. Were you on the bus or were you off? By 1972, combined offerings from the Los Angeles and San Francisco temples surpassed $30,000 a week. With these funds, Jones invested in 11 tour buses, repurposed into machines for his message. Jones selected an honored group of followers and rolled with them across the country, no longer just to San Francisco and Los Angeles. Jones's Holy Rollers rolled from Denver to Houston to D.C. to New York, all the while selling as much promotional material as possible. They sold healing oils. That was really just cheap olive oil. They sold scraps of Jones's old robes, mostly just from clothes picked up at thrift stores on the road. Most egregiously, they upcharged new believers on small photos of Jim Jones himself. Jack Beam led the charge on these photo sales. He claimed he always kept one on the dashboard of his vehicle, and that once, when he had a grievous accident that nearly decapitated him, the photo of Jones held him together with holy power. The insanity of Jones's faith healer image was beyond reproach now. During these religious tours, Jones started having his audience plants pretend to have strokes and die in the middle of sermons. Jones, of course, would stand over the body and return them to life. This happened on a regular basis during these touring years. Jim Jones was literally claiming to have power over death. His ambition of transforming into a God-on-earth figure, like Father Divine, was complete. Equipped with his newly divine ego, Jones thought it would be an excellent idea to swing back into Indiana on the road returning to California. All 11 tour buses pulled into Lynn, his hometown. The lead tour bus pulled over, asking for directions to their prophet's old home. By sheer chance, the man they stopped to ask was Don Foreman, Jones's childhood friend. Don asked who exactly their prophet was, and when the name Jim Jones returned to his ears, Foreman wasn't even that surprised. He laughed, shook his head, and pointed them down an old dusty road to the Bethlehem of southern Indiana. Jones's childhood religious mentor, Myrtle Kennedy, was more pleased to see her old religious charge return home. Jim Jones had his tour buses stay in Lynn overnight to make sure the entire town could see what he had become. But like everything in Jones's life, this was a facade. The settlement in Ukiah was slowly changing and coming under scrutiny by local officials. Children in the temple were allowed to attend a normal elementary school in Ukiah, but teachers were growing suspicious of these temple kids. They were precocious and often spoke out in class, declaring their beliefs in revisionist history Jones espoused during sermons. 
one teacher discovered a group of temple kids comparing bruises one day. While in a group, they all claimed to have been hurt while playing in their yard that weekend. But later, when the teacher got a child alone, they admitted that temple leadership had forced all of the children on a brutal, long, and unsupervised hike into the mountains. Abuse wasn't just limited to the children in Ukiah, though. Abuse against adult members was just as pervasive, and in some cases, more severe. While in Indiana, Marceline had suspected Jones of several affairs, but in California, her husband no longer tried to hide it. Ever since the People's Temple migrated to California, Jones had begun to encourage more openness in congregants' relationships, as if to match the free love suddenly taking over the West Coast. Sexual sharing became a key feature amongst the temple populace. It fit neatly into Jones' commutalist manifesto. Jones led the way by establishing an open relationship with Carolyn Layton, one of the newer followers whose husband was also in the temple. Her husband, of course, bowed to Jones's will. Carolyn herself was deeply in love with the temple's leader. She felt as if she had been selected by God and didn't think she needed to hide it from anyone, including Jones's children. By 1973, Carolyn was pregnant, and soon enough, Jim John, also known as Chemo, was born. One rainbow family wasn't going to be enough for Jim Jones anymore. An even more disturbing transgression can be found in Jones's relationship with Timothy Stone and his wife Grace. In 1972, Timothy and Grace had a son, John Victor Stone. Unbeknownst to Grace, however, Timothy agreed to sign an affidavit proclaiming that Jim Jones was the child's true father. This was kept secret from Grace for the first few years of John Victor's life. Eventually, the document would be used as emotional blackmail, a tool Jones used to keep both Stone and Grace in line as they both questioned the temple's future direction. We'll turn to the saga of John Victor Stone in more detail next week, but the fact that Timothy agreed to sign over the legal rights to his firstborn child should illuminate just how indoctrinated the higher levels of temple leadership were. Jones' emotional torture wasn't limited to Marceline or the Stones, though. Almost every member of the planning commission was put on trial at some point. Jones would make an accusation, usually a baseless one, and the chosen victim would be endlessly berated during the long, hot PC meetings above the Ukiah Temple and shunned in the community at large. As we mentioned earlier, Jones created these emotional divisions between members to create an atmosphere of fear and instability. This fits into another piece of Lipton's thought reform theory, confession and a demand for purity. Jones forced members to strip themselves down physically and metaphorically, all of their faults were to be displayed. Once cowed by their personal shame, Jones demanded that they own their sins and take a position of subservience. Only by following Jones could they redeem their failed lives. Yet the man himself was also a facade. By the early 70s, his drug addiction had reached a point of no return. He used drugs daily and often, with quaaludes as his personal favorite. During the leadership meetings that stretched late into the night, Jones collapsed on a couch and made Marceline or others close to him inject him in front of everyone. People either ignored the issue or truly believed he needed the injections to sustain his connection to a higher power. Other latent desires took control of Jones's behavior. Having an affair with Carolyn wasn't enough. As the leader, he was the most desirable man in Ukiah. He began sleeping with many of his followers, male or female. 
Jones declared himself the perfect heterosexual. He repeated over and over again to each male follower that they had a latent attraction to men inside them, even if they said they never held such desires. Jones would have sex with them to prove to them they were wrong. Men who had sex with Jones would write him a letter of thanks, proclaiming that he must have been right. Even if the sex itself didn't bring them pleasure, being with Jones did. He had exposed their inner flaws. Yet another miracle. But it wasn't a miracle. It was disguised sexual assault on a brainwashed follower. Jones would also use similar tactics on women who were reluctant to sleep with him. He told them they needed to examine their hidden desire for him close up. Otherwise, their marriages or relationships would surely crumble. He didn't need to force everyone. Most congregants wanted Jim Jones. They found him intensely desirable and would often fight with one another in order to earn a chance to be in his bed. On one memorable occasion, Jones interrupted such a fight by announcing that he would sleep with everyone who wanted him that day. Not for his own benefit and pleasure, but for theirs. Of course, that makes sense. On that day alone, he slept with nearly 20 temple followers. Behind the scenes, cracks in his holier-than-thou persona showed through to people like Jack Beam and Archie Yames. While Beam encouraged Jones's philandering and delighted in his crude recollections of the sexual acts, Iyamis saw a real weakness in his leader for the first time. But Iyamis and others who were put off by the behavior wrote it off. They were living in a post-Summer of Love America. If Jones sought to promote this behavior, what could they possibly do to change it? The theatrics of Jones' manipulation were no longer limited to his sermons or only used to recruit followers. In 1971, the People's Temple of Ukiah were gathered for a picnic on the hills near the compound. Suddenly, the silence was broken. Jim Jones fell to the ground. Instantly, the leadership gathered around him. The congregation was hurried out of the open and into the temple. Jones was taken away by top leadership. Everyone suspected the worst, but a few hours later, the temple doors opened and Jim Jones strode inside. His shirt was ripped open at the chest and covered in blood, but his gunshot wound had healed. Jim Jones had brought himself back from the dead. Now, some people within the highest levels of the PC knew this was fake. It was a stunt, like the ones they commonly engaged in. Yet no one spoke out, and the miraculous shirt was put on display in the Los Angeles temple. Jones immediately upped security. The temple guards were given loaded guns, and patrols circled the Ukiah grounds. Jones's office was always guarded by the most loyal and youthful members. Jim Cobb, Jones's prophesied leader from the inner city of Indianapolis, was one of his most trusted protectors. This level of paranoia was unjustified, but Jones was right to be afraid. Sharks were circling. His homecoming stunt in Lynn had awakened the interest of skeptical journalists at the Indianapolis Star, who remembered the People's Temple as a faith-healing stunt church from the 60s. When Jones pulled all of his operations out of Indiana in response to this investigation, Star reporters passed word to the San Francisco Examiner, specifically to religion editor Lester Kinsolving and his lead journalist Carolyn Pickering. In 1972, they staked out at the Ukiah compound and were disturbed by the armed guards. They began interviewing Ukiah locals, collecting stories of potential child abuse and other dark rumors. In response, Timothy Stone picked up Lester after work one day, along with two armed temple guards. Stone told Lester that he was slandering a good man and that he must stop. 
Jones funneled money to the examiner, a goodwill donation, one like the many the temple gave out to San Francisco clergy, politicians, and journalists, a payoff. Consolving and Pickering's story never achieved liftoff, but Jones made sure to keep a file on Consolving for the rest of his days, a binder that bulged over a foot in width. Jones was feeling the heat of unwanted attention. Then, hearts broke across the temple population when eight of the youth leaders, including Jim Cobb, defected in 1973. Known as the Eight Revolutionaries, they were the first people to stand up to Jones, even holding him at gunpoint in one of the temple communes. They told him they wanted Jones to let them go and to have their remaining family members treated properly. Jones would not poison others against them. In exchange, they wouldn't disrupt his operations further. They would leave Jones and the temple to continue in peace. At gunpoint, Jones agreed to these terms. Jones agreed, but knew further defection would eventually follow. He needed to increase control. The final straw came in December of the same year, 73. Jones was in Los Angeles to give a few sermons, but was caught with his pants down, literally, in a theater off of MacArthur Park. He had solicited a sex worker, who was really an undercover police officer, and been taken downtown for questioning. With some nifty legal maneuvering, Stone was able to get Jones out and offer an implausible but successful cover story. Jim Jones had been recently diagnosed with a urinary infection and needed to stimulate his member every so often in an effort toward recovery. LAPD had to let the powerful leader go, but their interest didn't flag. They opened a file on Jones and began asking police in San Francisco to keep their eyes peeled. Like the examiner reporters, the People's Temple became a target in their eyes. Jim Jones wasn't the man he claimed to be. Enemies were gathering on all sides. The defectors, the press, and law enforcement were all tangible threats. He called together the temple's top leaders, Marceline, Iamis, Beam, and Cartmel. The time had come, Jones said, to build their utopia. Ever since 1962, Jim Jones had kept alive his hope to build a faraway sanctuary, a true home for his socialist kingdom under God. And he had never forgotten his visit to British Guyana, which had gained independence as Guyana in 1966. So Beam and Iamis were sent on a scouting mission. Jones and his family soon followed. They flew to Georgetown and then took another quick hop to Port Kaituma. They touched down on the same runway where Jones would one day kick off his infamous mass murder. With $2 million promised to the Development Commission of Georgetown, Iames and Beam were authorized to purchase a parcel of land outside of Port Kaituma. By the end of 1974, construction of Jonestown would commence. Within four years, everyone in Jonestown would be dead. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really does help our show. Join us next Tuesday for our final episode covering Jim Jones and the People's Temple as we dive into the everyday lives of the cult and the repercussions of the tragic events at Jonestown. 
Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Carrie Murphy. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Jeanette Manning. Cults is written by Jack Bentel and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.